As we start this morning, I have a question for you. Are you a pessimist or are you an optimist? All right, alas, just for fun. Hands raised. If you consider yourself an optimist, not one. Wow. Actually, quite a few. Okay. Double optimist. Okay. If you're a pessimist, okay. How about if you're just a realist? There we go. A few years ago, um, at Gordon-Conwell, the seminary where I attended, Dr. Walter Kaiser, he served as a president. He had this story that he loved to tell. In one of his sermons, he, he shared the story. A family, a mother and father, they had two identical twins, two boys about 10 years old or so. One of them was an optimist. Nothing could ever go wrong in his world. He was always head in the clouds, happy as could be. The other, you guessed it, was the exact opposite. He was a pessimist. Every moment, every day was a complaint. Everything was going wrong. But both, both these kids caused concern to their parents. Both parents, the parents said, you know what? It's not good for them to go through life like this. So they took these kids to a psychologist. Now, the psychologist took each of these kids and put them in two separate rooms. The pessimist he took and he put in a room with a pony in it. All right. He leaves the room, he goes, takes the optimist, and puts this optimist in a room with some manure in it. Not so great. A few hours go by and the psychologist goes back to the room with the pessimist the child stood with his arms folded and his brow furrowed. He was angry. He said, this is awful. It smells terrible. This pony is ugly and it's about to step on my foot. The psychologist then opened the door to the room with the optimist. He was shocked to see the young boy smiling and excitedly digging through the pile of manure. What on earth are you doing? The doctor asked. Covered in head-to-toe in manure, the young child exclaimed, with all this manure, there has to be a pony inside. <laughs> when I asked that question earlier, you may, personally, you may lean one way or the other. You may say, you know what, I'm more a pessimist, maybe I'm an optimist, maybe I fall somewhere in, in between. But as, as, a, as Christians, as a whole bunch Someone looking from the outside may say, you know what, they're more the optimists. They believe that things will be better. They believe that God restores all things. However, the question remains, or the question should be asked, are we sometimes, as the church, clueless optimists? Are we those kind of people that look at the world, see everything that's going on, and is completely ignorant to what's happening? Given the struggles that Christians face, do we have grounding for our optimism? Are we right, or do we just believe in a fairy tale? Do we have evidence to the contrary, and yet are we still optimists? Given the struggles and challenges we face in this world, 
Are we merely hopeless optimists, believing in something that does not exist anymore? Are we convincing ourselves that despite all our experiences, despite what the data says, despite all this, that God still loves us? In your Christian walk, you may have asked yourself these questions. When you face a trial, when you face a challenge, when something so big came up, it shook you to your core, you may have asked, what is the grounds for my optimism? Why do I believe that all things will be okay? Why do I believe that all things will work out for the good? We have those moments where we've experienced pain, injustice, hatred, disappointments, the loss of a job, a terrible diagnosis, the end of a marriage, the end of a relationship, the loss of a child or a loved one. And in these moments when darkness and depression envelop us, we're left asking the question, am I separated from God's love? Do I have any reason to be optimistic? These things cause us to feel separated from God's love, and and we question whether he still loves us. Even Even as I stand here talking to you, I can imagine some of you maybe going back over events over this last week over or over your lifetime, and you're asking yourself these same questions. You may be saying, I heard that God loves me. I know that he loves me, but man, my experience is completely different. Does God's love still apply? In today's passage from the book of Romans, Paul's addressing this very question. Are we grounded in our optimism of Christ's Christ's love for us, or are we woefully clueless about reality with our heads in the clouds? Paul is trying to bridge bridge this this gap that you see. There is what we know and what we experience. Sometimes there is a gap that develops. We know that God loves us. We know that he has a purpose for us. But when we experience what we're experiencing every day, it's hard to reconcile those two things. And he's going to address this conflict for us. So if you would, with me, turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 And we're going to start with verse 31, work our way through 39. What then shall we say to these things? That's verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Let me stop there for a second. So anytime you have a phrase like then or therefore or if, you kind of have to stop and ask yourself, my, my Greek professor used to love to say this. If you ever see a therefore before anything else in this statement, you ask the question, what is it there for? Right? So he says, what, sh- what then shall we say to these things? What things are you talking about? What things is Paul referring to? And for that, let's step, take a step back to verse 28 through 30. And this we covered last week when Pastor Rick was here, and we read... And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called in them. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
Paul is starting to address these questions by stating what we know. We realize there are two things that I mentioned a little bit earlier. There are things that we know and things that we experience. So our challenge here today is to bridge that gap. And so Paul is starting off, he's saying, there are certain things that we know. God loves us. Last week, Pastor Rick talked about how God works in the lives of his people. He talked about the spirit who intercedes on behalf of us. He talks about the role of grace. And for these last few months through the series of the book of, uh, through the free series, we've been talking about God and grace and how he operates in the life of his people. As Christians, we can be optimistic because God is working out every situation for the good of those who love him. We have reason to be optimistic because God has a purpose for us. In verses 29 and 30, uh, 30, Paul's laying out for us what his purpose is. He uses five words to describe, and I'll go through them. We'll work this out next week also, so I'll go through them real quick. In 29, he says, he foreknew us. In other words, God knew each of us from the beginning. Even before you were a thought, even before you were born, even before you were even just a a little embryo in your, even before any of that, he knew you. He had a purpose for you. He loved you even before you were formed. He chose to love you before time began. And then he continues, those who he foreknew, he predestines. Predestined is exactly what it says. He laid out our destiny. Our destinies, they conform to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And those who he predestined, he calls, he presents us with the gospel. He presents to us the salvation that is found through his son, Jesus Christ, on that cross. And to those who he called, he justifies. Justification is a legal transaction. It's a legal term. It basically means he is declaring us legally righteous because of the work of somebody else. Because of what Christ did, you are no longer sinners. Because of what his work was, that was accomplished, you are free. It's a legal term. And then finally he says, he glorified us. There's a little bit of a nuance here. Paul says, Paul says he glorified us. How many of us think we're glorified. We still struggle. We still face each day. But Paul, in looking out in faith, he says, this work has been done, even though it is to be, it's going to happen in the future. We will be glorified. But he says, it's done. His purpose is displayed in that we are foreknown. That is, he's recognized us. He's, he's loved us. We are predestined to be like Christ. We are called from death to life. We are justified once and for all. We are counted righteous in Christ. We are glorified. That is God's plan for us. This plan ex- extends from the beginning of time till the end of time. It goes from eternity to eternity. It does not end here. This is a plan that extends for eternity. We have reason to be optimistic because of his plan for us. And then he continues in verse 31 through 34. And I'll read, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all these things? 
Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Do you hear what he's saying? If God is for us, who can be against us? We have reason to be optimistic. We know because he loves us. His love is displayed in his stance for us. He looks at you and he declares, I am for you. I am for you. This assurance of God's stance towards us tilts the scale in our favor. He is for us. So whatever you're facing today, know this, that God is for you. God is for you. When I was back in Bible college, our president, he used to have this little exercise. When we were in chapel, he would ask us to do this one thing. He would take these four words, God is with us. And he would ask each of us to say it out loud. But he said, before you start doing that, every time you'd say it four times. And each time you say it, you emphasize one word. You start with, God is for us. God is for us. God is for us. God is for us. And as we said it, that truth sunk in. The truth sunk in that he, the God of the universe, the God over everything, God over all creation, he was on our side. He is on your side. He is on my side. And if God is on our side, who can be against us? That's his love for us. God's love is displayed in that he would send his son to die for us in verse 32. And if this God, Paul is asking a rhetorical question there. He's saying, if this God would give up what is the most valuable in his economy, he gives up his own son. If he will give up his son, will he hold back on anything else? Would a God who would save your soul then leave you to fend for yourself? Would a God who goes to the extent of having his own son die say, you take care of yourself from now on? Paul saying, he gave up his own son and he'll give up so much more for you. God's love is displayed in justifying us. Because he justifies, there is no one and nothing that can condemn us. Paul sets for his audience an image of a courtroom. If you can imagine a judge who is God sitting there and the accused is standing on one side and the prosecutor, the enemy, he's leveling the charges against this person and he's saying, this person has done this, this person has done that, he is guilty of this and you should find him guilty. But God says, he has justified you. He has justified each one of us sitting here today. In that courtroom, there is a day that's coming that every one of us sitting here, everyone on this planet will have to give account for what he or she has done. Everyone will have to be judged for what they have done. And on that day, what merit do you bring to the table? What merit do you bring to the stand and says, God, judge me by this? The reality is we have none. We have no merit. The only merit is this, that Christ died for us. And because he died, we are justified. Hallelujah. 
He justifies us. The only way you and I can stand is in and through Christ. Every accusing voice, including your own, counts for nothing in God's opinion. God's acceptance trumps everyone else's rejection. He accepts us because he sees us through Christ. And finally, in verse 34, he says, God's love is displayed in, his, in, his, in Christ's intercession for us. Last week, I mentioned earlier, we talked about how the Spirit is interceding for us. The Spirit intercedes when we are weak and we don't, we don't even know how to pray for ourselves. The Spirit intercedes where we are weak, the Spirit steps in. And here you find Christ is interceding for you. This is who you are. You have the Holy Spirit. You have Christ himself. They are both interceding for you. Paul saying, look at yourself. Look at who you are. There is a reason for you to be joyful. There is a reason for you to be optimistic. There is a reason for you to walk out with your head held high. Because the Spirit intercedes. Christ intercedes for you. We have every reason, reason to be optimistic because God works in and for us. We have reason to be optimistic because God has a purpose for us. We have reason to be optimistic because God loves us. Paul's reminding that God is for us. Christ, Christ died for us. Christ was raised. Christ is living. Christ is interceding for us. That's who we are. You may be saying, well, I know these things. I know who I am. There's, that knowledge is there. But what I'm experiencing today does not line up. If I am so blessed, if I am so favored by the Lord, why am I experiencing what I'm experiencing today? The question some of you have, you do not know the hardships you may be saying to me. You do not know the hardships I face at work. You do not know the challenges I have in my family. You do not know what I have to endure every day and day in, day out. How does this line up? In June of 2013, Ted Robertson's home in Colorado was one of more than 500 destroyed by a forest fire. When he was finally allowed to return, he came back to a pile of rubble. All ash. He was hoping to find a family heirloom, heirloom his, his wife had made. It was this little tiny ornament. It was a little baby Jesus. And he said he had treasured this his whole, his whole marriage, and he wanted to find that one little thing. And he looks into the ashes, he looks into the rubble, and he asks, is the baby Jesus in here? You see, sometimes facing what we face, facing the trials that we face, facing the, tr the pain and the agony that we face, we ask that same question, is God here? Is God around my struggle? Does God understand what I'm going through? Ted found that little baby Jesus in the corner of his garage. We all have experiences at one time or the other, where we're shaken to the core. We have those moments where we've experienced pain and rejection, where our loved ones have turned their faces away. We've experienced those times where our beliefs became, became 
a standard for us to be persecuted against because of our beliefs. We were persecuted against in our workplaces because of our beliefs. Our family turned away because of who we are. We experienced that pain. When you accepted Christ, there, were some, there, was, there was a price you had to pay. Some of us come from backgrounds where our family said, you are no longer a part of us because you have accepted this Christ. Especially those of us who have come from different religions, you know what that price was. But in all this trial, in all this agony, in the pain that accompanies these moments, we're left asking Just like Ted, looking at the ashes, is there a Jesus in here somewhere? He's saying, this is what our experience is. Our struggles make us us question if God still loves us. In verse 37, in the beginning part, he says, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now again, we'll take a break. In all these things, what is he talking about? Let's... Let's track back backwards a little bit. In verse 35 and 36, he's writing, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. See, here's where the conflict occurs. Our knowledge of God and our experience, they don't match up. There's a cognitive dissonance there between our knowledge and our actions. There is a disparity. We don't get why they don't line up. If God so loves us, then why do we experience pain? If God so loves us, then why do we experience this trial? Why are we sitting in agony? Why are we sitting? Why are we traveling through this, these dark nights of the soul? Why? There is a question that has to be answered. In April of this year, as many of you know, Jen and I, we traveled through one of those dark nights of our souls. We had been praying for a few years that we would have a child. And finally... We had gone through all these procedures. We had gone through the doctors, and they said it was going to be a long, arduous journey, and it was very much that. Finally, we found out that Jen was pregnant. You could not have imagined how happy we were. Five months of absolute joy, five months of looking forward to what God had planned for us, five months of looking forward to a lifetime of happiness. One night without warning, we lost our baby girl, Arya. She was born a bit too early, too young to survive. Many of you walked with us through those hard moments, and we're so thankful. We were comforted by your stories of how you had gone through the same pain. But those questions in those days after came flooding in. We pled to God for an answer, but we were met with silence. 
We ask God, is this really the plan for our lives? If you so love us, if you paid such a price for us, if you have done all this for us, is this what is this your plan for us? Were we wrong in our knowledge of who God is and how he works? It was hard for us to realize at the moment but God, that God's love was not limited by our circumstance, but instead it shone much brighter. It was in those painful moments that we realized who God really was. He was carrying us through. I wish I could tell you the doubts and the fears and the pain has, not, has all vanished, but it hasn't. But it is in these moments that our perspective of who God is I hope it's much stronger, it's more resilient, because God is stronger than who you're, what you're facing. God is stronger than your problem. God is stronger than your storm. God is so much bigger than all you can imagine. We have a limited understanding of God's love and his purpose for us. We know that he is close to the brokenhearted. We know that he sustains the weak. But when we experience things in our lives that seem to be contrary to this knowledge, how do we reconcile this? That is a question we have to grapple with today. In saying if God is for us and who can be against us, Paul does not mean that we will not face trials. He does not make any statement that, he, that you will never face hardship. So what is he saying? Of all people, Paul knew what it meant to go through hardship. He feared persecution daily. He faced it. In the letter to the Corinthians, he's writing in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. he writes, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked at night and a day adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in in hunger and thirst, and often without food, in cold and exposure. This is a man who knew pain. When Paul is writing from his experience, he's also writing to a people who was very well accustomed to pain. See, he's writing this letter to the, to the Christians in Rome. Christians at that time, they were not quite popular. In just a few years after this letter is written, Paul almost prophetically writes this because he knew there was a time coming in the life of these Christians where they would be persecuted beyond imagination. You see, in just a few years, there's going to be a great fire that breaks out in Rome and the emperor Nero would be accused of starting it. But instead, he decides he wants to deflect blame and who best to deflect blame onto than the people who were hated most. So he decides the Christians had to go. Cornelius Tacitus, he, is one, he was one of the senators during the reign of Nero. A historian, he writes this. In their very deaths, and he's writing about the Christians whom Nero had decided to persecute. In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport. For they were covered with the, with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs or nailed to crosses or set fire to. And when the day was done, they were burned to serve as evening lights. 
These were people. These were the Christians. These were, this is the first church. He's writing to what people who knew what pain is, who knew what pain was. He's writing to a people who were persecuted. But he's writing, God loves you. He is writing, God has a purpose for you. And he's not saying it's a purpose to grow you and flourish you and make you great. Instead, he's saying he has a purpose. To us, the experiences these Christians face does not line up with what they knew about God. They did not have the option of blind optimism in the face of these trials. Neither do you. In this country, fortunately, we don't experience the same kind of trials that church did and the church today does. We face a different sort of trial. While that trial may be more physical, we face trials on a completely different level. We face trials on emotional. We face trials on political. We face trials on a, a, on a completely on a mental level. You are persecuted not physically, but you're persecuted for your beliefs. If you were truly to stand up at your workplace and you tell them your stance on, on abortion or you tell them your stance on, on all the hot topics of the day, how do you think you would be treated? You see, God loves us. God has a purpose for us. But sometimes our experience and what we know does not line up. What distresses are you facing today? What are your trials? You may face ridicule, rejection within your own family, within your own community. These are the enemies to our happiness. These make challenges our security in Christ. Whatever these may be, the question is still, how do we reconcile these things? Paul says God loves us, but also mentions the difficulty of life. This is what we experience. And this experience challenges our knowledge of who God is. Again, that same question. Are we clueless optimists looking at what we face and still saying God will make it okay? Or is there a real reason to why we have this perspective? You see, this perspective, perspective comes in verse 37 through 39. No, in all these things, in what things? Just a moment ago we read the trials, the tribulations, the persecutions that he faced. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me read that one more time. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In spite of his present experience, Paul's maintaining that we are never separate from God's love. He asks this question, who can separate us? What, can your circumstance, can your trials, can it separate you from God's love? And the answer is no. You're even beyond your trials. You are more than conquerors. 
Paul starts at a different place than many of us. We look at our experience and say, okay, based on my experience, this is my understanding of God. And Paul's saying, no, no, let's back up. Paul's telling to use God as your lens to view your experience instead of using your experience as a lens to view God. Your God is not limited by your experience. Your God is not made greater by what you experience. Your God is greater no matter what. Your experiences are tempered by who your God is. That's Paul saying. We can be confident in spite of this present reality because things that happen in this life do not change the unchanging. What Paul advocates for is not a change in our knowledge of God, who God is. He's not saying, stay home, lock yourself up so you don't have to face a trial ever again. He's not saying any of that. But what he is saying, we need to have a new perspective. A new perspective of who God is. A new perspective of his purpose and his love for us. Our perspective is very much limited to the immediate. But he is saying, let our perspective be eternal. Our optimism is justified because God's purposes for us are eternal. You see, if you go back to verse 30, he ends there with he glorifies us. You see, he starts way back in the beginning, and he ends in eternity. Your plan, God's plan for you, is not limited to your 20 or your 40 or your 50 or your 80 years or your 100 years here on this planet. His plan for you is not limited to your experience. His plan for you is not limited to the time you spend on this rock. Instead, his plan extends from beginning to the end. His plan extends to even after you have gone from here. His plan, his purpose is eternal. He goes, Paul goes to lens to assure believers that God has always had a plan to get believers to the finish line. Working all things together for the good. Showing them how they will be able to persevere through their trials. He's not saying, and nowhere in his gospels does he say, once you become a Christian, once you accept Christ, things will be great. There is nowhere that he says, once you, are, once you have taken on this new identity as a Christian, life will be a cakewalk. No, he's saying, instead expect greater trials, but he's saying there is a perspective that shifts. God's purpose for us is to walk through. God's purpose for us is to endure those trials and through it all, be conquerors. You may say, I know many Christians who are optimistic about their lives in Christ, yet things didn't work out quite well for them. They still died of cancer. They still did not get the job that they wanted. The relationships were never mended. You see, we ask the question, was their optimism misguided? Paul's saying no. Paul, God's purpose for them does not end here. God's purpose for them is eternal. God's purpose for them did not end with their lives here. God's purpose goes into eternity. Our security is found in God's work that crosses over into eternity. 
Our plans begin at birth and end at death. And so any pain in this life is magnified from our perspective. God's love for you begins even before you were born and ends way after you've died. His love, his purpose is eternal. What we face today, we face momentarily, but God's plan is eternal. Our optimism is justified because God's love is eternal. In verse 37, Paul's using an interesting Greek term here. He uses the word hooper nikomen. I'll break it down for you. Nikomen means overcomer. You're victorious. So the question is, why is Paul using adding on words when this completely captures what it means. You see, the word huper in the Greek means super. It means greater. It means way more than. And so what Paul is trying to communicate to you is you're not just a mere conqueror, you're a super conqueror. We are more than conquerors. We are more than what he has, what what we need for the moment through Christ's work in us, through the Holy Spirit's work in us. We are more than conquerors. We are super overcomers is what he's saying. That's who God has destined you and I to be. In 38 through 39, and I'll start wrapping up here, Paul's listing 10 things that that cannot separate us from God. Verse 38, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God. You see, when he's writing this letter, death was a reality for the people, for his audience, and he's addressing that immediately. This may be a concern for some of you today. You may be facing the death of a loved one or even your own, and Paul's saying neither death nor life can separate us. We are more than conquerors in death or life. He continues that neither angels nor principalities nor powers that can separate us. Paul's making this point that no cosmic, no supernatural power can ever keep you down, can ever keep you from the purposes that God has for you. There is nothing out there that has more power than God has for you. He goes on, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death. This is Paul's way of saying everything out there, nothing, nothing can stop the Christian because of who we are in Christ. Some of you are saying the present is fine. What I'm experiencing today, I'm okay with. But I'm terrified of what comes after this. Paul's looking at you and saying, neither the present nor the future. We are overcomers in the present and in the future. The future is in God's hands. It's absolutely his. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. He continues, nor height, nor death. No matter how high you go or how deep you go down, you will never find a power that can nullify God's keeping power. The psalmist is writing, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in in hell, you are there. Nothing in the highest heaven or in the deepest hell can separate you from the love of God. Then at the end of verse 39, he adds one inclusive statement. No other created thing. There is nothing 
created that can separate you from the love of God. If he hasn't covered everything, I don't know how else we could. He's covered it all. He says there is nothing out there that can separate you from the love of God. No no matter what happens, God's plan for you is never derailed. There is not a moment in history where God wakes up, God looks down from the heavens and he goes, I didn't see that coming. He is never surprised by your circumstance. He is never surprised by the doctor's note. He is never surprised by what you're going through. He is never taken by surprise. You are always in God's plan. From the time we believe, from the moment we put our faith in Christ, there is nothing that that we or Satan or our families or anyone can do, our friends, our coworkers, our classmates, whoever you may be thinking of, there is nothing that they can do to separate you from God's plan. God promises you this. And he is not man that he lies. God's love does not quit. God's love does not fade over time. God's love does not, does not fail us. It is not impulsive. It is not based on a whim. It's not based on feelings or passing fancies. His love is rock solid. It is intent on benefiting you and me, regardless of the cost. Now call the worship team up. His love never fails. His love never quits on you. There is no circumstance that you can find yourself in where his love is not enough, where his purpose is not fulfilled. God's love, God's purpose is the basis for our optimism. You see, like that little boy in that room, we're not eternally optimists. But instead, we're optimists because of the eternal. We're optimists because of who God is. We have a reason to be joyful. We have a reason to have a good outlook on life because of who he is, not because of us. God's love, God's purpose begins in the beginning and ends in eternity. Our perspective Begins when we are born to the last day we breathe our last. God's perspective goes on forever. And in his perspective, there is nothing that can separate you or me from his love. May God bless us.